Would you open your Bibles, please, to Revelation chapter 2? We'll be in the text today. In this lesson, we're going to take a verse-by-verse look at the first of seven letters to the churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And, of course, the first letter is addressed to the church at Ephesus. Now, there's a great deal of material to cover in this morning's lesson, so I'm not going to review any of our two introductory lessons that we had on the seven churches. If you happen to miss those, you really do need to get the notes or the tapes so that you know a lot of uh, additional material, additional details about these seven churches. In part one of our outline for today's study, we're going to consider some of the details about the actual city of Ephesus as it existed during the days of the apostles. And then in part two, we're going to look at some of the details that we know about the actual church which existed in that city. In part three, we're going to consider the description of the Lord Jesus Christ that he gave of himself to the Ephesian Christians. You know, in each one of the seven messages, the seven letters, we're going to find that the Lord started out in, so, in sort of his salutation to that church with a personal description or a designation of himself which was taken from the vision of himself in chapter 1, that vision that John saw of the glorified resurrected Christ. And each one of these descriptions we are going to see is appropriate for that particular church. Well, then finally in part 4 of our outline, we're going to consider the declaration of the Lord to the church, and this, of course, is the largest section of our study, and we're going to have to conclude it in next week's lesson. I wasn't able to get it all in one study. So next week when you come, we'll finish up looking at the church of Ephesus, the letter to the church at Ephesus. So I want to begin by talking about some of the details of the actual city as it existed at the time John wrote this letter, which was about 96 A.D. I have Ephesus circled there on the map. Ephesus was the largest city in the Roman province of Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey, southwest Turkey. It was known as the metropolis of Asia, and it was a free city, meaning that there was no permanent Roman military. Uh, There was no Roman garrison, no Roman soldiers located in that city. It was free to govern itself. They knew it was a city that would behave itself, so they they let it be free. Ephesus was one of the most exciting and one of the most prosperous cities. It was a harbor city. It no longer is. If you go and see the ruins of Ephesus, it's way back off of the, um, the water. But it was also a, um, a center for uh, trade routes. I think there were four different trade, uh, major roads that all came into Ephesus. So it was a very prosperous city, but it was also one of the most terrible cities which ever existed in the ancient world because it was extremely immoral. It was believed by the pagans of that day that Diana, who is known as the goddess of fertility, Diana is her Roman name, but um, in Greek she is called Artemis, that she was born in the city of Ephesus. Therefore, in the 4th century B.C., 400 years before Christ was born, the Greeks dedicated to the city to her, and they built the greatest Grecian temple in the world, 
to her honor and for worship of her. Now, the temple of Diana was even larger and it was more famous than the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens, Greece. In fact, the temple of Diana was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We're told that the temple stood on a platform which measured 100,000 square feet, which is twice the size of a football field. And the temple itself was 425 feet long. It was 220 feet wide, and it stood about 60 feet high. It was supported by 137 magnificent glittering Persian marble columns. And 36 of those columns were completely overlaid with pure gold and jewels. So it was really something else. It was quite spectacular. And then inside of the temple, of course, stood this large statue or idol of the goddess Diana, which they say fell from heaven by Jupiter. Jupiter sent it from heaven. I wonder what the craftsman who actually built that goddess thought about that. But that's, it's even in the Bible. We may read that today if, if we don't get to it. It is in Acts where they say that it fell from Jupiter. And I'm not speaking about the planet Jupiter, but from the you know, Greek mythological god. Or was he the Roman one? There was Zeus and Jupiter anyway. They were both one and the same. And anyway, I told you that she was the the goddess of fertility, so you can just use your imagination to imagine what kind of worship this included. There were all kinds of eunuchs and priestesses and temple prostitutes who assisted the people in their worship of Diana and all kinds of, every kind of sexual symbol that you can imagine was actually bowed to and worshipped. And in their worship of Diana, not only were they very immoral, but they actually mutilated themselves in part of their worship service. So it was really a sick system of religion. The emperor cult also was uh, greatly flourishing in the city of Ephesus. And many various temples were built for the honor and the worship of the succeeding Roman emperors as they came into reign over the empire. So magical arts and the occult and religion were all hopelessly intertwined. And the population of about 250,000 people, about a quarter of a million people that lived in this city, they were in great extreme darkness, weren't they? It was a very, very dark, sad situation. The city was a hotbed, really, for just about every kind of cult and superstition that Satan could devise. One of the most famous people to have come from Ephesus was the philosopher Heraclitus. And he was sort of known as the Greek version of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known to us as the weeping prophet. Well, Heraclitus was known as the weeping philosopher. It was said that he never smiled. And when asked why he never smiled or laughed, he said that he wrote in his writings that the morals of the Ephesian people were worse than the morals of animals because even animals do not mutilate themselves as the Ephesians did in their worship of Diana. 
And he also wrote that the inhabitants of Ephesus were fit only to be drowned. And he explained that the reason he never smiled or laughed was because he lived among such terrible people and among such terrible uncleanliness. Well, it was to such a confused, dark, depraved, wicked, immoral city that a small Jewish man arrived one day in about 51 A.D. bearing a torch of light. That small man, according to the book of Acts, was the Apostle Paul. They say he was not very tall at all. He came to Ephesus while he was traveling from Corinth to Antioch, and you'll read about this in Acts 18.19. He talked with the Jews of that city. You know, whenever Paul went to a city, where did he go first? To the local synagogue. So he went into the local synagogue of the city and he talked to the Jews because at least the Jews were monotheistic, right? They only believed in one God. They would not be the worshipers of Diana and the Roman, other Roman gods nor the Roman emperors. And he talked to them and um, gave them the gospel message and promised them that he would return to them. In the meantime, during Paul's absence from the Ephesian Jews, he left two important people in the city. They were a married couple. Does anybody know who they were? Yes, exactly. Aquila and Priscilla. He left them in Ephesus. And it was there in verses 25 and 26 of Acts 18 that you will read that they influenced Apollos, who was a godly man, but he had not heard about Jesus Christ. And Aquila and Priscilla were influential in leading Apollos to, the, to a saving knowledge of the Lord. And Apollos was a mighty, mighty godly Christian. Then on Paul's third missionary journey, he returned, as he had promised, to the city of Ephesus. And this time, he ministered there, it tells us, for a total of three years. I think I said two years last time. That was wrong. He was there for three years. He was there from 52 to 55 A.D. Actually, Paul spent more time in Ephesus than he did with any of his other churches. And this is probably because Ephesus was such a needy city, such a dark city. And there were so many people there. But he spent three years in Ephesus. And when he left, who did he put in charge of the church, which was growing? Young Timothy was left in charge of the church at Ephesus. that he stayed there about 30 years. Now, we don't know this dogmatically, but this is what we get from some extra-biblical materials. And it was from Ephesus, they say, that he wrote the Gospel of John and also from where he wrote the three epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, was from the city of Ephesus. Tradition also reports that Mary, the mother of Jesus, lived her latter years and died and was buried at the city, in the city of Ephesus. And that would make sense if John was living there, because remember what Jesus said to John on the cross. He said, Behold thy mother. And John then took Mary to live with him. So that would make sense. The Ephesian church, by the way, I'm now talking about the details about the church. We went from the details of the city. I'm in the second part of our outline talking about the details of the church. 
The Ephesian church was one of the most outstanding churches of the entire apostolic era because, well, Paul, Timothy, and John all served it. That makes it pretty outstanding right there. But then we also know, as we just said, that Aquila and Priscilla and Apollos were also very actively involved in this church. So we could very easily say, couldn't we, that this was a privileged church. Isn't it a church that you would have liked to have attended? A very, very privileged church. It was also the largest and the strongest church in Asia Minor, and it was probably the one from which the other six churches in Revelation 2 and 3 were founded. The church of Ephesus was the only church to which two apostles wrote letters. Paul wrote the letter of Ephesians and uh, John really Jesus, but John was penning this letter to the Ephesians here in chapter 2 of Revelation. Paul wrote to them when they were at their peak, whereas John wrote to them at their time of crisis, although they probably did not know this was their time of crisis. And we'll talk about this next week. Then in Paul's, uh, or in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, there are two notable prayers in that small epistle. The first prayer is found in Ephesians 1, verses 17 to 23, and in that prayer, Paul is praying that the Ephesian Christians would have more light, you know, more knowledge, more light. The second prayer, which is found in uh, chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, is a prayer that he is praying for the Ephesian Christians to have more love. So more light, and more love. And this makes it really sad for us to see that some 30 years later, after Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, that the Lord Jesus Christ, through John, wrote to the Ephesians these very sad words in verse 4. He said, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. The furnace was still there. But the fire had gone out. There was still a measure of warmth, but the coals no longer burned with a bright red glow because their original passion for the Lord Jesus Christ had slowly but certainly cooled off. And what we have portrayed for us in the church at Ephesus as we'll see, is a picture of a very, very busy church and a very uh, doctrinally sound church, but inwardly it was notably lacking in love for Christ himself. Well, Ephesus, and we talked about this in our introductory lessons, uh, Ephesus stands for the first stage of the church upon earth, you know, that first stage of church history. The church, of course, we know, is the object of Christ's love. As Paul stated in his letter to the Ephesians, Christ loved the church, and what did he do for it? He gave himself for it. It's, he died in order to establish the church because it is the object of his love. The church is his bride, the object of his love. It is the most desirable possession that Christ has. Remember what the word Ephesus means in Greek? It means desirable. 
Sadly, however, the drive and the dynamic which had characterized the early years of the Ephesian church as well as the early years of the apostolic church age, church stage, were slowly replaced by a more staic and settled form of Christianity. So the church, even in her early development, was beginning to rest back on her oars, and consequently, she was even back then beginning to start to drift. Now, as mentioned earlier, the worship of the false goddess Diana, or Artemis in Greek, was a very important aspect of life in Ephesus. This was not only true from a religious perspective, but it was also true from an economic perspective. When the Apostle Paul began to preach the gospel message in this area, and when his words began to bear some significant fruit, the worship of Diana, what do you think would happen to worship of her? It was significantly affected. I mean, because when people come to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and are born again, they no longer worship false gods. They know he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there are no other gods. So they would stop worshiping Diana and all of the other gods of the city. And those who ran the temple prostitute business began to feel the loss of their profits, as well as did the local craftsmen who made the idols for Diana. You know, everybody had to have an idol in their house. They had to have an idol on the dash of their chariot. They had to have idols hanging around their necks and from their ears and everywhere else you can imagine. And so there were idols all over the city, and this was making the local craftsmen really prosperous. Well, actually, there were so many Ephesians coming to Christianity or converting to Christianity that the craftsmen, under the leadership of a silversmith named Demetrius, this you can read about in Acts 19.24, these craftsmen all came together for a council session about what were they going to do. They were having a problem. Demetrius was the spokesman, and he said this to his fellow workmen. He said, Sirs, ye know that by this craft we have our wealth. Moreover, ye see and hear that not alone at Ephesus, but almost throughout all Asia, this Paul hath persuaded and turned away much people, saying that they be no gods which are made with hands. So that not only this our craft is in danger to be set at naught, but also that the temple of the great goddess Diana should be despised, and her magnificence should be destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worshipeth. Demetrius was upset because his pocketbook was being affected. And he was also upset and worried that the worship of Diana would come to nothing and that she would be despised and eventually even removed, possibly, from the temple and that Jesus would be placed in there instead. So he was successful in stirring up a riot, which caused Paul eventually to understand and know that he needed to leave the city for a while. Now, what a testimony this was, wasn't it? To, this was a great testimony to the power and the effectiveness of the gospel message and of the early Christian church 
at Ephesus. I mean, that church was growing so much that it was upsetting the townspeople. It really, in other words, that local church had really made an impact on the city in which it, it dwelt. Now, don't you wish that, that uh, our churches in Sanford and the surrounding area could have such an influence on the city that the townspeople who ran the, the local bars and the adult bookstores and the abortion clinics and all those bad kind of places, the, the pool halls, that all the people would come together and have a meeting and say, our pocketbooks are being affected because of these Christians. What are we going to do? And wouldn't it be great if we had that kind of an impact on our city and that they had a riot about what to do with us? That would be great. That would be a strong testimony. So this church had a very strong testimony, and it was making a difference on its environment. As we consider the words which Christ spoke some 30 years later now in chapter 2 of Revelation to this very same church, which had had such an influence on its city that the local craftsmen were afraid of losing their income, were going to be very saddened to see what had happened in those 30 intervening years. Probably, because as you know, I'm not going to get into it till next week, but they have left their first love. Probably a large part of what had caused the Ephesian Christians to leave their first love is that the church was now in its second generation of Christians. 30 years basically brings in a new generation, although a generation is around 40 years. And although this second generation continued to labor faithfully, they were very, very busy. They were very faithful, as their fathers and mothers had been. Yet the love of Christ, which the first generation had possessed, was somehow not quite there. It was sort of missing now. It wasn't as fervent as that first generation. That's a danger a lot of times with second generation Christians. Children who've been raised in a Christian home a lot of times don't have the zeal. I mean, it's not always true, but a lot of times they're just because they've heard it all their lives, so they don't have the zeal sometimes as a first generation Christian has. And this cooling of the heart was really the, the dangerous forerunner of spiritual apathy, which was later to erase all Christian testimony from this entire region, from this important city and from the whole region, surrounding region. The seven church letters really show us that what may begin as just a cooling of spiritual love can progressively allow the love of God to be replaced by the love of the world, by compromise. And this, in turn, can give rise to spiritual corruption. Well, the cooling is the church of Ephesus. The love of the world and compromise we see represented for us in the church of Pergamos. And then that gives turn, rise to, the, um, to spiritual corruption. That's what we see in the church of Thyatira when doctrinal error started taking over. And this decline is then followed by apathy. This is the way a church can just digress. Apathy is represented to us in the church of Sardis. And then, of course, that will eventually lead to a departure from the faith altogether and a total loss 
of an effective spiritual testimony to the world. And that is what we see in the last church and the last stage of church history, represented by the church at Laodicea. Well, let's look at the appearance of Christ. Now, this is the third part of our outline. For this, look with me at verse 1, if you would. It says there, Unto the angel of the church of Ephesus write, These things saith he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand, who walketh in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. In each of these seven church letters, as I told you before, a particular portion of Christ in his glorious appearance to John back in chapter 1 is emphasized. In this first description to the church of Ephesus, the Lord spoke of himself as he that holdeth the seven stars in his right hand and also as he who walketh in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now this description was given for us back in John chapter 1 in verses 13 and also in verse 16. However, if you are careful to take note of exact little words, you'll realize that there are two different, two little differences in this Ephesian description of the Lord. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, we're told that Christ held the seven stars. You know, remember the stars are either the guardian angels or the ministers of the churches. He held those seven stars in his right hand, whereas in verse 16 of chapter 1, John wrote that he had the seven stars in his right hand. I mean, that's just a minor difference, held or had. Furthermore, in chapter um, 2, verse 1, we're told that he was walking in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks, whereas back in chapter 1, verse 13, he was simply described as being in the midst of them. You know, so we had the picture sort of of him just standing there being in the midst. Now we're told that he's walking. This emphasizes to us and also to the Ephesians that Christ not only has the stars and that he is in their midst, but that he is actually engaged with the churches. He sovereignly holds them. You know, that kind of gives you a picture of this, holding them. And he has full knowledge, therefore, of their activities. So it's not surprising to find that in each one of these seven church letters we're going to hear the Lord say, he actually sort of starts out his message to them by saying, I know thy works. He has full knowledge of what's going on. As the head of the church walking and holding the church, walking among the churches and holding them, he is ministering to them and he is examining them with his intense and ever-present awareness of all of their works. He knows everything that's going on. He knows their thoughts. He knows their motives. He knows their every single activity. In other words, he who is better than the angels, as we're told in Hebrews, and he who holds them in his very hand, and he who walks in the midst of the churches, reminds all of them of his power and of his position as he begins this first message to them by way of the largest and the strongest church, the church of Ephesus, the one from which the others had probably been founded. Now, we find another interesting characteristic of the Lord, uh, of his approach to his church in the next verse. because He begins in verse 2 by commending the church for that which is good. 
He does that first. That is how he begins his letter, by commending them. It is not until after he has commended them that he then points out what is wrong. So this is something else we learn about the Lord's approach and his technique when dealing with his church. This is an example, therefore, that we should follow. If Christ did it, should we do it? Yes, we should imitate him, we should copy him, we should always follow what he does. We should follow this example within our homes, we should follow it with our husbands, with our children, with our parents, with whoever, and we should follow it in our churches. We should always commend that which is good first. And then whatever type of criticism or rebuke or whatever is to follow, chastisement, That should come after we have first said what is good. A spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down, right? But sadly, what are we oftentimes prone to do in our human fallen sinful natures? We're often prone to criticize whenever we see something that's wrong and fail to commend at all that which is good. So we really need to follow the Lord's example here because criticism, criticism, criticism without that spoonful of sugar can easily discourage those in, in the ministry for the Lord, no matter what capacity. If they just hear criticism and nothing good, they're going to easily get discouraged and want to quit. And same thing with our families, right? If our children always hear negative, negative, negative without the positive. Actually, we will see in our Lord's example that he bookended the bad with good in this letter. Because he said something good, then he hit them with the bad, and then he said something good again in verse 6. So this is just something that we need to probably work harder at in our own lives. All right, let's move on to part four of our outline. I won't dig for my outline, but we're going into the declaration from Christ. This is the, well, maybe I will because I've got a lot of things underneath it. This is the longest part of our outline, and we're going to look at um, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, yeah, six, six subdivisions. We'll look at his approval, his accusation, his admonition, his advice, his appeal, and his award. The only one we're going to get to today is his approval. So you'll have to come back next week to hear the other five. So his approval, let's read about that in verses 2, 3, and 6. We have to jump to 6 because, remember, I said in, the, in between he gives them the bad news. But then he, again, gives them some good news down in 6. So let's look at 2, 3, and 6. He says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience and how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not and hast found them liars. See, this is all good things that they were doing. Verse 3, and hast borne and hast patience and for my name's sake hast labored and hast not fainted. All right, down to verse 6. But this thou hast that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. That, again, was a positive. The church of Ephesus, according to the Lord's own commendation here, was a serving church. It was a sacrificing church. It was a steadfast church, and it was a spiritually discerning church. The members were commended for their works for their labor and for their patience, in verse 2, as well as for their abhorrence of evil. They hated evil. 
and he have commended them for their ability to discern that which was true from that which was false. They were able to discern false apostles. They were able to discern those who did evil, and they were able to discern the Nicolaitans and keep them out of their church. The first thing for which they were commended was for their labor, and this was this was a uh, serving church. This was a church which was very, very busy doing the works of the Lord. Verse 3 tells us who did they labor for. They labored for the Lord's name's sake. They were a busy church. The Greek word used for labor here is a word which indicates strenuous, exhausting toil and labor. These Christians were sweating for the Lord. They were really, they were they were burning their candles at both ends. They were working hard for the Lord. I wish we had more workers like this in our churches today. They say that usually 10% of a local church congregation does 100% of the work. Most Christians do not even know what it's like to drop one drop of sweat in working for the Lord. They just come and they take and they say, entertain me, and if I like it, I'll be back next Sunday. They don't know what it's like to labor, labor, burn out for the Lord. But the Lord was commending a church like this. He was commending Christians like this. He was saying, in effect, you are to be commended for your work effort put forth in my name's sake. You are totally exhausting yourselves in doing my work, and that's good. He is saying, this is good. These believers, you see, had decided that it was better to wear out than to rust out. So the church at Ephesus was a hard-working church. Furthermore, we know that their work for Christ's sake in this immoral, wicked city of Ephesus, that, that their work for Jesus would have cost them something in a city like this. The Christians would have probably suffered a lot of verbal abuse as well as being affected in their businesses. If they had local businesses, I'm sure the people would not buy from them. I'm sure their children would suffer persecution and all kinds of other things would have been going on. They would have been socially ostracized from the society. And also, of course, some of them, as we know from church history, some of them would have even been um, would have even sacrificed their own lives. I'm sure there was, we know that just right over in Smyrna, people were dying, and here in Ephesus as well, people were being persecuted for their faith in Christ. They struggled and they sacrificed at a high cost for his service, and especially, of course, under the reign of Domitian, who was reigning when John wrote this letter of Revelation. Actually, Jesus wrote it, but John penned it. So the Lord commended them for their willingness to sacrifice and for their patience um, under trial. They kept on keeping on. And he also commended them for their steadfastness as a church body. And then he continued to praise them in verse uh, 2 by saying, Thou canst not bear them which are... Do you ever feel like you have days like that? By saying, Thou canst not bear them which are evil, and thou hast tried them which say they are apostles, and are not, and hast found them liars. The Christians of Ephesus carefully examined any visiting 
preachers or any visiting men who would come to their church and try to convince them that they were apostles or that they were successors to the apostles. You know, many people over the centuries of the church age have been led astray by such false leaders. There are no, have you ever gone by a church which says that apostle so-and-so will be preaching today or... There are no successors to the original apostles. I've got news for you. There are no apostles today. Even if they call themselves an apostle, they are not. How do I know this? Well, it's really very easy. We're given a a vital prime requirement for the apostleship by Paul himself in 1 Corinthians 9.12. He says that an apostle must be one who has seen the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are no men today who have seen the Lord Jesus Christ because he left on the day of Pentecost. John saw him in Revelation, but he won't be back for anyone to see him until the rapture of the church. And then when we're leaving the church, there won't be a need for apostles after that. So there are no apostles today. It became virtually impossible for heresy or false teaching to penetrate into this Ephesian church. These people were clever. I mean, when it came to spiritual discernment, they were there. They had it all together. They could spot a false prophet a mile away. They were determined to keep their church doctrinally pure. Although, of course, we said last week there are no perfect churches, so we know that there were, of course, some tares in the church, but they couldn't have been very overt, or the Ephesians would have spotted them. The Ephesian church manifested and it maintained doctrinal purity as least as much as is humanly possible, and they did this by way of three different um, aspects, according to the Lord Jesus himself. First of all, in verse 2, we notice that he commended them for not bearing them which are evil. Now, as I said, there may have been tares in that church, and there probably were, but they weren't overtly evil, and they weren't standing in front of a Sunday school class teaching, or someone would have reported them, someone would have known. So if there was a tear, he was a very quiet tear, and nobody really knew his heart. And these Ephesian Christians refused to associate with anyone who lived an evil, immoral lifestyle. I mean, I'm sure they witnessed to the people and went out in streets and witnessed and passed out tracts, etc., etc., but they would not socialize with them. They, they separated themselves from those who were immoral. They had an intense hatred for sin, and they were commended for this by the Lord. You know, in our modern day, many church members and many pastors think only about peace at any price. Let's just have peace in the body at any price. And we find that many, many Christians are more interested in keeping the peace than they are in keeping pure doctrine. You know, don't stir the waters by pointing out that that isn't correct doctrinally. However, there is no place in all of the word of God where you will find that peace should come above truth. Peace is important, but not at paying the price of truth. Nowhere in the scripture will you read that peace should come above maintaining high biblical standards of godliness. 
we must remember that Christ commended the Ephesians for having a holy abhorrence of all that was morally and spiritually bad. You know, I wonder, I seriously wonder if he would commend our local churches today for the same thing. Do we have a holy intolerance of that which is evil in our churches? Second thing that the Lord commended the Ephesians for was for trying them which say they are apostles and are not and has found them liars. First of all, he commended them for abhorring evil, then for finding false apostles and outrightly calling them liars. The leaders of this church were spiritually discerning enough to know how to try, how to test those who laid claim to the apostleship. You know, the power and the authority that the true apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ had um, was such that certain wicked men coveted that authority and that power. And therefore, they were seeking the position for themselves, and they were pretending to have apostolic power. Therefore, there were a lot of teachers in this early stage of church history claiming to have an inspired message from God. And all of these men had to be tested by the churches to see if what they were saying truly... I mean, they didn't have a complete copy of the New Testament like we have so that they could go right to it and see are they really saying what they should be saying. They had a lot of the uh, letters, but not all of them by any means. And so they really had to have been... That's why Paul spent three years there make sure that these people were grounded in doctrine. Well, how are we to test men? How are we to try men to see if what they are teaching is true or false? How are you to test me to make sure that what I am saying is true or false? Well, the Word of God tells us that we are to test teachers, preachers, by the Word of God. That's our ultimate authority, is what they are saying in agreement with the word of God. The second way we are to test men and women is by their lifestyles. In his first epistle, John tells us that we should reject any person who denies that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. In other words, that denies that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that he was God incarnate. Anyone who comes to your door, knocking on your door, ask them that question. 1 John 4, verses 1 to 3, tells you to try the spirits to see if they're true or not. See if they admit that Jesus Christ is the God-man, that he's 100% God and 100% man. What do we have today in most of our church circles? We have a plague of so-called church leaders who do not even believe that Jesus Christ is the virgin-born eternal Son of God. I could give you names of men that would horrify some of you. And I've got serious news for you, and there are a lot of men like that. You can turn on your TVs and watch them all day and think they're so wonderful, but find out what they really believe before you listen to them, before you send your money to them. If Jesus Christ was not virgin-born, do you know what that means? That means he wasn't sinless. 
He was just like you and I. He was born a sinner. And if Jesus Christ was not sinless, you and I are still dead in our sins, and we are doomed to eternal hell. So don't say, oh, you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. You do need to believe in the virgin birth. The true apostles of the Lord, as I said, such as Paul, were very, very careful to lay a groundwork for the early church, a a groundwork of true doctrine for the early church to follow and to be able to try and test anyone who would come their way. As stated by Paul in his letter to these Ephesians, he and the other apostles, you see, did not want the believers of the early church to be like children. He didn't want them to be tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the cunning craftiness of wicked, deceitful men. They didn't want that, so they laid the groundwork for good, sound doctrine. Christians of not only the early church, but Christians of all generations of the church age should be grounded in the word of God. That's why we have so many today in Christendom who have gone astray, because people today are biblically illiterate. Even in good Bible teaching churches, so many people don't know basic things about doctrine. But we need to be grounded in the word of God so that we're not tossed about with every wind of doctrine that comes our way. By every new teaching that comes along. And so that we're not deceived by crafty men who say all the right words. Some teachers are especially dangerous because what they do is they teach a whole lot of truth and just put in a little bit of error. But what have we what did we learn last week? A little leaven spoils the whole lump. It's like putting one drop of poison into a glass of water. It's still deadly. It's still going to kill the one who drinks it. And then of course there are those out there who are just outright apostates but they still remain in the realm of Christendom. They're Satan's emissaries. They, they go around and they proudly deny the deity of Jesus Christ. They deny that he is the creator. They deny creationism and they embrace evolutionism or theistic evolutionism, which is a real compromise. They deny the Lord's virgin birth, as I just told you. They deny his blood atonement. They say, let's not talk about a bloody religion. Well, without the blood, there is no, what? Remission. There's no salvation. They mock and they scoff at the idea of his second coming. You know, the World Council of Churches and the National Council of Churches are full of men and women like this. They're full of New Agers. Human, human secularists, and even worse, people who just outright worship Satan. The church of Ephesus was wise because they examined all teachers who came to them or who arose among them, and they were quick to dis- I mean, they believed in church discipline. They were quick to dismiss any who did not preach the truth, and they did not hesitate to expose and expel them from their assembly so that all would be, they called them liars. Jesus says, you call them liars. You Outright in front of the whole assembly, you're a liar. Get out of our church. 
There's nothing wrong with godly church discipline. Our churches need to be doing a whole lot more of it so that we don't have all these tares in our churches voting for our church decisions. Well, at 2 Corinthians 11, verses 13 to 15, the Apostle Paul had given a warning about such false teachers who would, be, who would claim to be speaking for God. You'll know these words. You'll remember them. He said, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. What were they doing? Remember we just read about They were coming in saying, I'm an apostle. Well, Paul had warned about this long before. He said, and don't be surprised at this, and no marvel, don't marvel, because Satan himself is what? Transformed into an angel of light. Satan is so clever. He can look like he is so sweet and so godly and stand behind a pulpit and use a man who just, you'd say, oh, he's so wonderful. And he could be one of Satan's emissaries. You need to listen to what the man is saying. And you need to look at his lifestyle. Lifestyles will tell you a lot. That's what the whole book of 1 John tells you what to look for in a man to see if he's true or not. He went on, he said, Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. In due time, they'll get their reward. The Ephesians knew about Satan's strategy to infiltrate Christ's church with his false teachers so they did not fail to put men to the test who claimed to be God's messengers. In view of the fact that Ephesus was in a prominent location, remember I told you it was on a harbor and there were four main roads that came into Ephesus and it was the largest city in the whole area. They were highly susceptible to many, many traveling itinerant preachers and false, you know, false teachers and false apostles. So they had a lot of experience in eliminating men who weren't teaching the truth. It's interesting that in the very last speech that the Apostle Paul gave to the elders at the church of Ephesus, remember when he told them he wouldn't see them again, they hugged and kissed his neck, and it was a very sad scene. This is in um, Acts chapter 20. In his very last speech to them, he gave them this stern warning. He said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves, in other words, from your own assembly, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after him. Some like to just stand up and spout off so that they'll have people follow them, you know, pride. He said, therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. Was Paul concerned about this matter of false teachers in the church? He sure was. He says, every day, night and day, with tears for three years, he ceased not to warn them about grievous wolves coming in to their assembly. He knew the seriousness of having false teachers in the pulpit. Well, the third thing, all right, first of all, they're commended for hating evil. Secondly, they're commended for recognizing and expelling false apostles. The third (coughs) way in which the Lord commended the Ephesians (coughs) 
was um, given to us down in verse 6. <coughs> Excuse me. We read this. He says, But this thou hast, that thou hatest the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. When Jesus Christ says that he hates something, do you think that's serious? It's serious. But notice this. He did not commend the Ephesian Christians here for hating the Nicolaitans. There's a big difference in hating the sin and loving the sinner. He did not hate them for hating, I mean, he did not commend them for hating the Nicolaitans. He commended them for hating the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And this, he said, is also what he hated. He didn't hate the people. God so loved the world. He loves the sinner, but he hates the sin. Well, at this point, we need to ask, who in the world were the Nicolaitans? How many of you have ever heard of the Nicolaitans? A few of you have. Well, this group is mentioned once again in the church, uh, the letter to the church at Pergamos, so we do need to find out who these people were. There have been various explanations as to who these people were, but really the best explanation lies in the meaning of the name itself, the name Nicolaitans. This is a Greek word. It's a compound word which comes from two words, Nikao and Leos. Okay? Nikao, the first part of the word. You all know this word if you have ever bought a pair of Nike shoes. It is the word which means to conquer or to have victory over. They got the name for Nike gym shoes from the Greek word Nikao, or Nik, yeah, Nikao, which means to have victory. They want you to buy their shoes so that you will have victory over your opponents when you're out there on the basketball court or the tennis court or whatever. It means to conquer or to have victory over. And then the word laos, L-A-O-S. You all should know by this time what that word means because when we studied the church at Laodicea, we talked about this same word. Did you, anybody remember what Leo, Laos from Laodicea means? Yes. Laos is the Greek word for people. So when we put nikao, Laos, together... What we have is a war compound word that means victory over the people. or And also the word laos is the word for which we get our English word laity. So it means victory over the laity, victory over the common people, conquering over the people. This sect of men was trying to rob their to rob the christian people of their liberty in christ by beginning a division which today is known as the clergy and the laity or the priesthood and the laity and this is a false division which is never taught in the new testament the nicolaitans were trying to overpower the common people with their own authority rather than with the authority of Christ and his word. Well, the Ephesian believers were spiritually discerning enough to keep these men out of their church. However, the Pergamum 
church members, as we'll see when we get further on in this chapter, they were not quite so careful. In the stage of church history, which is represented by the church at Pergamos, we know how a priestly order developed, which was eventually capped with a man who was called the Pope. And this whole system divided the people of the church into priests and laity, or into clergy and laity. Now the Ephesians and Christ himself said that they hated this approach. They hate this false division. It might not be so important to hear that the Ephesians hate it, but believe me, it's very important to hear that Christ Jesus hated this false division. And I believe he still hates it, don't you? Same yesterday, today, and forever. He hates this division in the brethren of Christ because all of his children, all of his church, are to have equal standing in the church. All of God's people, we already talked about in Revelation 1-6, all of us, if we are truly saved, are kings and priests. And we all have equal access to God through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 John 9 and 10, John spoke about a man named Diotrephes. And Diotrephes was very possibly a Nicolaitan. Diotrephes, if he was not a Nicolaitan, certainly had a Nicolaitan mindset. John, who, uh, John in that his second epistle, no, third epistle, I can't see very well. Third epistle said this. He said, but Diotrephes, who loveth to have the preeminence among men, receiveth us not. John was writing, and he's saying when he went to where Diotrephes was, when he went to that church, Diotrephes would not receive him. And John was a true apostle. Wherefore, he says, if I come, I will remember his deeds which he doeth, prating against us with malicious words, and not content therewith. Neither doth he himself receive the brethren, and forbiddeth them that would, and casteth them out of the church." You see, John, after writing about this man named Diotrephes, who had taken it upon himself somehow or another, he must have been in a church where the leaders were not so spiritually discerning as they were at Ephesus, somehow or another he rose to a place of prominence in that church, and he determined that he had the authority to receive into and dismiss from the church assembly anybody he chose. And when John came, he decided not to let John in, and John was an apostle. Of course he didn't want John in. What do you think John would have done with him? Well, John, after writing about this man, immediately after writing about this man, said this. He said, Beloved, he's writing to Christians, follow not that which is evil, but follow that which is good. He that doeth good is of God. But he that doeth evil hath not seen God. That's in 3 John 3. No wonder Christ hated the deeds of the Nicolaitans. You know, those people who were trying to rule over the people in some kind of a superior manner. 
he hated them because this is evil according to God's own word. And we know that a holy God cannot stand that which is evil, cannot stand sin. Fred Ottoman, in his commentary on the book of Revelation, said this. Let me just read this quote to you. He says, there grew up different schools, each professing a different leadership, some claiming Paul, some Cephas, some Apollos, and some Christ. Remember, we read about this in the book of Acts, that people were having a problem wanting to follow certain men instead of just Christ. He said, Christians were making themselves disciples of men rather than of Christ. There has been a natural tendency to do this in all Christian times, men setting up certain standards and others gathering around them. So Christ's own people have dominated by clerical leadership, have been dominated by clerical leadership of various kinds. Thus the laity, that means the common people, the people, have been subjected to ecclesiastical control and sect upon sect has multiplied and divided on the face of the earth. The eyes of the followers of Christ have been diverted from him and fixed instead upon men. And this would seem to be the very core of Nicolaitanism, the people being subjected to the one who leads them. Whatever diverts from Christ is to his dishonor, end of quote. Now, of course, this does not mean, I hope you realize, that God has not placed certain men, certain gifted men, into the churches. We know that he has. It says he's given some apostles, they're all gone now. They, the apostles died out with John, but he has given some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, teachers, and what has he given them for? He's given them for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying, the lifting up of the body of Christ. He has called some of his servants, we know this, into full-time ministry in order to train his people to do his work. But these men, as the Lord Jesus himself said back in Matthew 20, they are not to be like the Gentiles and lord it over the people. Rather, what are they to be? What are the church leaders today to be? They're to be the servants of all. It's just as Jesus came to serve and to minister and to give his life, they are to serve and to minister and to give their life for their flock, for their people. Unfortunately, the sin of Nicolaitanism has gotten hold today and over the years of so much of Christendom that many church members today and throughout the corridors of church history regulate soul winning. You know, they think soul winning is just for the pastor or for the evangelist when we know from God's word that God's clear plan is for every Christian to be a witness for Jesus Christ. And then Nicolaitanism has gotten such a hold that we also find many church members entrusting their eternal souls, the most important thing that they possess, and they're entrusting their souls into the interpretation of Scripture which they are given by their church leaders. You know, many of these people, so, this is so tragic, many of them never read God's word for themselves to test 
and to see if what their spiritual leaders are telling them about their eternal destiny is true or not. When they say you have to be a member of this church and then you're okay and you'll get to heaven, shouldn't they open the word of God and see, is it true I have to be a church member? You know, to... Or when they say you have to partake of the sacraments or when you have to do this or when you have to do that. I mean, think of all the cult leaders and people who have committed suicide following idiots. Those people never opened God's word to test what they were hearing. And therefore they're you know, doomed to eternity in hell because of their ignorance, because they wouldn't test what they were hearing. But the Ephesians did test such men, and they found them to be false, and they hated their evil deeds of deception, and we should hate the evil deeds of people in cults and people going around trying to proselytize. You know, I cannot say good day to one who comes to my door. We are not to bid them good day. We are not to encourage them in any manner. We are to hate what they are doing. They're going to go to the next house and maybe find someone that they can convince into their wicked way. Someone they can bring into, into the false deception and someone who will go to hell believing their false teaching. So don't, don't wish anybody good day and don't buy their stupid papers just to get rid of them. Don't give them any money. Don't encourage them in any way. We are to be like the Ephesians and hate their evil deeds. You give them something if they'll take it. You love them, but you hate what they're doing. And the Ephesians prevented these type of people from having any kind of an effect upon their church, or at least as much as humanly possible. And for such wisdom and for such discernment, Christ commended them. See, he would commend us if we were doing the same thing. He commended them. So if you and I were to examine this church, this church at Ephesus, we would probably conclude that it was about as close to perfection as we could find in a church. Yet... The Lord can do something that you and I cannot do. He can read the heart of a church, just as he can read the heart of an individual Christian. And therefore, he had a different diagnosis for the church at Ephesus than you and I would have. Although they were a serving, sacrificial, steadfast, spiritually discerning church, the great physician diagnosed them with having a serious heart condition. You see, the activities that they were engaged in so fervently were not motivated by a heartfelt love for Jesus Christ. You know, what we do for Christ is very, very important. But it is even more important why we are doing it. And this is what we're going to look at next week, Lord willing, when we return. We'll see how the Ephesians had left their first love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you and thank you so much for this time of the week that we have had here together in fellowship in our groups and also in fellowship in your word. And Father, if I would pray for anything this morning, it would be for Christians to wake up 
and to start being more spiritually discerning. I would pray, Lord, that across America, Christians and church members, those who don't even know you, first of all, of course, would get saved, but that secondly, they would have a burning desire to get into your word and stop being so ignorant of it. We know Hosea said, my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge, and that's certainly what's happening today. today. Lord, I just pray that more and more people would get a hunger for your word as these precious women in this room have such a hunger, and I thank you for it. And Father, we thank you today for the example that we've seen from the church members at Ephesus as far as being serving, how they were willing to toil and to sweat and to wear out, not rust out, in your service and how they were sacrificial, that they were patient under trials and hardships and persecution and even willing to be martyred for their faith and how they were steadfast and they didn't faint, they didn't grow weary in well-doing and Lord especially for how they were so spiritually discerning so that they were not tossed about by every wind of doctrine and weren't easily deceived by false teachers, that they were willing to employ church discipline and get rid of those who did not teach in accordance with your holy precious word. Thank you, Lord, for the example that they give to us to hate evil, to love the sinner, but to hate evil. May we be like-minded as the Ephesians in these areas. Of course, Lord, we don't want to leave our first love, though. So help us to keep that fire burning brightly. Now, Lord, we would just pray that you would be blessed as we minister to you through our song to you. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.